The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Carl Sinn. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hello, everybody, and uh, thank you for joining us at the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is Trinity's Research Institute for the Arts and Humanities. My name is Eve Patton, and I'm director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, uh, but I'm also a lecturer in Trinity's School of English. So I'm particularly pleased uh, to be hosting this very special Culture Night brunch conversation, which is on the subject of writers' letters. Uh, and uh, we are joined today by three experts who've recently worked on editing writers' letters. Uh, and uh, I want to, first of all, welcome them and then introduce them to you very briefly. Uh, we're joined, first of all, by Bernice Murphy. And Bernice uh, lectures here in Trinity in the School of English. She's an expert on many things, including American horror writing uh, and uh, the urban Gothic tradition, but also on the US author, Shirley Jackson. And Bernice has recently been a, a consultant on the editing of Shirley Jackson's letters, which she did uh, in collaboration with the Jackson family. So Bernice, we're delighted to have you. Uh, and uh, I look forward to talking more about Shirley Jackson's letters in just a minute. We'll be hearing second from Frank Shovlin. And Frank is Professor of Irish Writing at the Institute of Irish Studies at the University of Liverpool, but will be well known, I think, to many of you as an expert on the work of the Irish writer, John McGahan. And uh, just very recently, uh, Frank's edition of John McGahan's letters was published. So Frank, many congratulations to you, a very well-received uh, and, and very timely volume of, uh, of McGahan's letters. Uh, and we look forward to hearing more about that. And our third contributor today is my colleague, also from the School of English in Trinity, Philip Coleman. Philip is an expert on American uh, writing, both uh, prose and poetry, uh, and uh, is recently the editor with Callista McRae of the selected letters of John Berryman, the US poet. Uh, so again, a very well-received volume, Philip, and uh, we're excited to hear more about that. When we think about writers' letters, there are lots of questions, of course. Why do we bother to look back at the correspondence that writers have produced in their lifetime? What are the practical and procedural difficulties for editors who are attempting to assemble volumes of correspondence? And do we run ever into moral or ethical difficulties where we feel perhaps voyeuristic in prying into the private lives and emotions and hearts of, uh, of writers that we know and love? So these are some of the thoughts that uh, we want to discuss in this brunch conversation for Culture Night. Bernice, I wonder if I could come to you first, because uh, you worked with the, the Jackson family on editing Shirley Jackson's letters very recently, and uh, it's a super volume that I want to talk about a bit more. But I wonder first if you could tell us a little bit about Shirley Jackson. Who was she? What do we know about her writing? Uh, and, uh, and then we'll come on to the letters. 
Yeah, um, I worked actually with Jackson's eldest son, Lawrence Jackson Hyman, who um, if people are familiar with Jackson's work actually shows up a lot in her in her writing. So, but um, Jackson, so Jackson is probably best known still for a 1959 novel called The Haunting of Hill House. So if uh, so she's very well known, particularly for a long time within the horror and gothic community for that and for her short stories. She did a very an infamous short story called The Lottery in 1948, which attracted famously more complaints than The New Yorker has still ever received for a single piece. Uh, and she became something of a literary celebrity at that stage. So she's very well known. She wrote six novels, um, some of which are perhaps more gothic than others. Um, but she was she also had an incredibly diverse career. Um, she was. Um, one of the most publicly visible uh, sort of public housewives of the era because she wrote two very successful and very commercially successful volumes of domestic memoirs. Um, and she also, uh, a lot of that material had been published in women's magazines of the era, such as Good Housekeeping. Um, so Jackson was someone who actually had a, a multifaceted career that I think, and she also wrote books for children, that I think until very, very recently has kind of been overlooked uh, except by people who are really, really into Shirley Jackson. Um, so one of the great things I think about the letters as well is that if people perhaps weren't aware of the breadth of her literary accomplishments, I think the letters provide a really great insight into particularly the sides of her career um, and her professionalism that have maybe um, up until, as I said, quite recently been overlooked, particularly by academics. Exactly. And I, I know a lot of people will know The Haunting of Hill House or have seen one of the, the several adaptations yeah. that have been produced of it. But it was a, a really exciting moment for me to look at the letters, because one of the things that comes through so strongly is this tremendous personality that this mm -hmm. writer had. And also, quite unusually, we see letters that take a very interesting form. Shirley Jackson doesn't like the capital I. Uh, she uses a very distinct style in her writing, which is full of brio and life, and, and it's very vivid, her writing. But she also, of course, likes to put in doodles and cartoons. Yeah. Uh, so what was it like for you working on letters which had such a different, an interesting shape to them? Well, it meant that really one of the first major conversations Lawrence and I had when we were sort of um, working together, started to work together um, a couple of years ago was, do we, do we, do we retain the, um, particularly the formatting, the idiosyncratic formatting, particularly of Jackson's personal letters? So her letters to her future husband, Stanley Edgar Hyman, for instance. I mean, they're, they're really interesting to see. They tend to be incredibly long. Um, she sent a, at least one a day um, and they were single spaced. And as she says in one of the early letters, you know, essentially I'm kind of taking from you, Stanley. I'm only going to use lowercase and I'm going to. So she, she actually maintained that in a lot of her personal correspondence and um, throughout her life and we felt that really um you know we, we that it was really important to keep that kind of typographical um, uniqueness there because i think that's part of the charm of the letters and is also part of the the vividness of the letters in the sense of this playfulness and and, and powerful personality i think is, is very much apparent. And then you can see the interesting contrast between the letters to her agents, which are obviously much more formally uh, presented, but at the same time have the same kind of wit and humor and personality as the more, the more personal letters to family um, and friends and particularly to Stanley early on. And those letters to Stanley, uh, to her, as he would be her future husband, particularly the early letters, they're really moving and they're emotional and they're tremendously romantic. They're very, very open. And I think it's a side of Jackson that will particularly surprise people, uh, uh, you know, because I think 
uh, sort of the the early Shirley Jackson, Shirley Jackson in the 1930s, Shirley Jackson, the sort of the um, bourgeois college girl, as she would have certainly called herself as, as she was, you know, the deb Shirley Jackson, the debutante, um, is a side of her that gets kind of, I think quite often traditionally Jackson has only been looked at in terms of the 1950s. And one of the things I, I think the collection is really important is that we get this insight into Jackson. You know, one of the, literally the first line and the first letter we had, you couldn't make this up, was portrait of the artist as a young woman. I mean, <laughs> just kind of, <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of the very first things in the letter, because that's literally one of the first letters that we have. So there is that self-consciousness about them. And this is something we'll talk to all three of you about, I think, that, you know, how much do writers as they begin to establish a career, have an eye to their letters as something that might be read by other people in the future. Um, but Jackson, and, and this again is something all three writers have in common, uh, obviously is writing for a lot of the time about domestic affairs, about romantic affairs. She also keeps an eye though on world events. And uh, I wonder if we can just have a, a quick clip now uh, to give us an idea of, uh, of Jackson as a writer who also brings in, of course, the trauma of the Second World War. So I hope Quiva is going to be able to play uh, a, a short video for us. Dear Louis, First of all, we are delighted to hear of your collection of promotions and transfers. I don't understand any of it very well, but it sounds terribly impressive. You wanted to know how the invasion news was received. It's hard to describe. I only saw what it was like in our neighborhood, and I think it was the most terrible day of my life. I went out to do my marketing in the morning and people kept stopping me on the street to take my paper out of my hands to look at the headlines. And the butcher looked at me when I asked for veal and finally picked up a handful of hamburger and put it in a bag and gave it to me. And the old lady who has the bakery was sitting behind the counter crying. And when I muttered something embarrassed and sympathetic, she wailed, they're going to raise my rent $10 a month and then her daughter came in and told me she had four sons overseas. We got the news when the New York Times came and sat through breakfast with all the radios on. Wonderful, and, and we could see as well in that clip, of course, Bernice, that uh, the uh, the doodles, the, um, the little pictures are behind the, uh, the, the scenes there. But to the foreground, this distress at what was happening in France and with the Allied invasion of Normandy. Uh, and we see these, these moments coming into Jackson's letters, not that frequently, but, uh, but they're definitely there. What I wanted to ask you about as well is how much we can read into um, the body of, of the letters, the writer herself, and, and particularly these interests in the Gothic and the, the domestic Gothic that of course she becomes um, the, the champion of. Uh, I was very struck by how she has the ability in her correspondence to make everyday events uh, a little bit chilling. There's one description, for example, of how she's gone to the dentist and uh, the dentist comes at her with a chisel. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, that transfiguring of all that, that transformation of, of ordinary everyday experience into something just slightly off kilter and alarming. It's very much a hallmark of her writing, isn't it? 
Yeah, I think uh, she really was. Uh, it's a characteristic of post-war horror and gothic in general, but Jackson is one of the best at it. She she twists the mundane into the macabre with you know a flick of a switch, and and often with a with a element of morbid black humor as well. But um, she's absolutely brilliant at that. And um, I, I should say there's so much about dentists in this letter. And uh, <laughs> Jackson went to the dentist. <laughs> so I know a lot about Charlie oh, and actually wrote an amazing short story called The Tooth, which is about a nightmarish trip to the dentist. So um, but um, just to come back to the gothic side of things. Yeah, I think um, I, th I think you see too an awareness, a careful awareness of her own image and, and a sense that perhaps some of the perceptions of her as this profoundly gothic figure herself that started to take hold quite early on. There's a really uh, brilliant letter from the late 1940s where she's writing to her parents and she's going, oh God, I mean, I'm paraphrasing poorly, but she's saying, I just gave this interview about her first novel and she'd become kind of a celebrity because of the lottery. And uh, he kept asking her about witchcraft. And of course she kept, she says, I made up stuff out of, out of mystery stories and told them whatever came into my head. But actually that's one of the articles that sort of appended this, you know, name of like Shirley Jackson, the witch, which is something that I think maybe a little bit of her kind of um, enjoyed secretly because she was actually very interested in magic and, and the occult. But um, also I think she recognized at that time didn't necessarily do her any favors and maybe led to a degree of condescension. So. She was very, very conscious of her image and she's a professional writer, you know, she knows the publicity and how you're represented is important, particularly as a woman writer, of course, where there's a whole other raft of expectations and um, assumptions made about one. Exactly. And, and Bernice, that's something maybe I could ask you about finally, because it's extraordinary how the letters lay out the journey that Jackson takes to being that commercially successful writer and how good she gets at balancing the domestic commitments of her life and she has children she has a husband she has to manage a home several of the letters simply describe her cleaning routine for example the shopping trips that she goes on how she manages to balance that and learns to balance that with dealing with difficult editors with dealing with magazines with dealing with the um, the career path that she found herself on yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's really obvious is she was very much, much a working mother um, for her entire and even, you know, um, she had a mother of, of very young children. She was at the same time, you know, publishing in, in, in magazines such as The New Yorker and, and building up this national reputation. So it's from very, I mean, really for her and she often uses language. I mean, this is quite common for female writers anyway, but she uses language about, you know, uh, you know, her new child is her new book as well. And she talks, she uses that kind of um that kind of language and I think something that's kind of maybe overlooked particularly with, is with female writers of the time is kind of like the sheer professionalism of, of Jackson I mean she was an incredibly hard worker and incredibly productive um just on a, on a side note to that quickly it says one of the things I find really interesting too and you know we made sure and included this you know in the index as well is um I mean Jackson did have domestic help as well and that was really important um you know housekeepers and etc but she also did a huge amount, was very, very hugely involved in, in the lives and the domestic workings of her own uh, husband and children as well. Exactly. Thank you very much, Bernice. We'll come back to you. But I'd like to move on now to, to talk to Frank Shovelin uh, and, uh, and to find out a bit more about editing the letters of John McGahan. So welcome again, Frank. And uh, many people listening will know McGahan's work, but can you just tell us a little bit about how you approached this project and, and why you wanted to edit John McGahan's correspondence? 
Uh, yeah, thanks very much for, for having me. And I'm delighted to be here uh, joining you from, from Liverpool today. Um, I had admired John McGarhan as a writer from when I first read him, which was when I was a first year undergraduate in Galway back in 1990. And I read his story, Gold Watch. And I then went on to read Amongst Women and the collected stories. And they, all, all of them um, caught me in a way that perhaps no other writer had prior to that. And they continue to do so. And that's, I mean, I guess that's one great thing about working on the letters. Even though I've worked very hard on them now for seven years, uh, and I'm now going to write a biography, I'm not in any way tired of McGarren. Um, I return to his stories as though they were new every time. And um, so I think there's, there's, there's just an incredible quality in, in the work. Um, so when Madeleine McGarren approached me back in 2014 with the idea of editing the letters. Uh, it was thrilling. Um, I didn't say yes straight away because I knew how difficult it would be. Uh, but she was able to give me some sense of how many let letters she had in her, in her possession, which was significant, you know, at least a couple of hundred. And I could see, okay, I could make a start with those and I, I could start hunting for the rest. Um, so I said yes after a couple of weeks thinking about it. And um, Madeline, uh, Madeline's absolutely crucial to the project. You know, we've become great friends over the years. Uh, she's been extraordinarily helpful in answering hundreds, hundreds of questions I've put to her over the years. Uh, you know, I might say to her, you know, can you tell me, you know, what this bar was that you were visiting in Paris in 1971? And she'll tell me, yes, this is the name of the bar. This is the name of the street. And this is who we met there. Um, so that's just, you know, you, that's gold. Um, and without that, it, I, I could have done the book, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been the book that it is, you know. Um, the, 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 the footnotes I've written, I've, and I've written over 2,000 of them, the most vibrant are, are those that, that are informed by what Madeline was able to tell me. Um, and... Uh, so, you know, the book, um, which just came out two weeks ago, so I'm still kind of getting used to it. Um, you know, it's a big book. It's about 850 pages. Um, but I hope it's, I hope you, you as readers will find it readable. Uh, if nothing else, you know, <laughs> as bedtime reading, it's not like a novel. You don't feel like you have to finish a chapter. Just read one letter, you know, if you like. And, uh, you know, it's, and nor, nor is it a book that you have to read through. Um, you know, Faber thankfully did a terrific job on the indexing, and uh, you know, there, there's, you know, he has the, the index. If I'll just give you a, a tiny example of of how the index works. So look up under P. Uh, so the first three entries under P are P. J. Flaherty's Pub, Galway, Pablo, who's a dog, and the Pakenham family. Um, now, I, I can remember what they're all about. You know, I know why each of those is in there. But I, you know, I think it'll be, it'll be fun for those who are already McGarhern fans. But I hope that the book will also create a new readership for McGarhern. Um, because, um, I, I mean, I'm in no doubt of the quality we're looking at here, uh, you know, in a way, 
as the video will show in a moment, it's not just that John McGahern was one of the greatest Irish fiction writers. I think he was one of the great uh, literary stylists of the 20th century, writing in English. And I'd like, you know, I, I hope that the letters will help to uh, help to demonstrate that more than is already the case, if that's possible. I think they will, Frank, and I found them absolutely compelling to read. And one of the things that that really drew me in was how often we do see the apprentice novelist at work in the early letters, you know, the noticing of the natural world, mm. the noticing of a scarf that a young woman wears at mass, you know, that this sense of John McGahan's unique eye that we know from, from the prose fiction is there in, in certainly the first half of this book. Mm. Uh, perhaps in the second half that gets drowned out a little bit by the, the, the weight of uh, the publishing world and the difficulties of, of publishing the novels, which we can also talk about because so many of the letters, aren't they, are about just the process of putting a book together and McGahan having to deal with questions of, of uh, what we do about swear words and expletives in his mm. fiction and, and how editors should deal with those. And even what the covers of his book should look like, a very hands-on writer in this regard, which I hadn't anticipated. I wonder, in fact, if we could have a look at the uh, the little excerpt we've got of, of one such letter, Quiver, if you wouldn't mind playing the video on this. Dear Peter, my heart fell at the sight of the cover. Impression, a schoolgirl's book. A chocolate green or green chocolate of the pig in the kitchen. My pro stands against everything the cover says. Surely Yate, Joyce and Beckett gave Irish letters some universal dignity. I might let it pass if I thought it would find its reader. My experience is that people likely to buy the book are people who enjoy the language. A cover like that is the same as selling cheese under a sugar label. Macmillan published The Barrack with an Irish cover. It got sensitive Irish reviews. It sold 750 copies. Knopf published The Dark in typographical cover, it got wide reviews as literature. It sold three and a half thousand copies, and with a little luck, could have done much better. Irish, except Joyce Beckett, wasn't mentioned in the reviews. The hankering after the little homestead is played out. Grove have no need of it. The cover is lazy, unimaginative, and it's stereotyped since whoever designed it thought it a cliche, a long dead one at that. Why can't it just get decent? type red and black if nothing can be better thought of. The only justification of a picture is that it's a good picture, a painting or a print. That cover is debt to the book. Gregory wouldn't have let it through. I don't want to hear the viciousness in his laughter when he sees it. And you as a poet, as well as a publisher, must be able to see it's a disaster. That kind of Irish cover has been literally played to death and is as dead as the literature it symbolises. Lovely mists that do be rising on the bog. Pop of the morning. I'll be back at one rue, Christine, on the 1st of October. Can you write to me? Forgive any mistakes. I am disturbed, John. Wow, Frank, that's a whole narrative of, of Irish writing in the 20th century, right there in that letter. I wonder, can you set that in context for us? Yeah. Um, it's an amazing letter. Um, and uh, I found it amongst Patrick Gregory's papers in NUI Galway. Quite late on, I had somehow missed it on the first run, which in itself is alarming for anyone who's ever done archival research. You begin to question yourself. Mm. But anyway, 
I found it and um, it's, a, it's, one of, it's one of a very few typed letters that, that John has. Uh, he, he usually handwrites letters, but he clearly wanted to spell this out. He's writing to Peter Davison, who was his editor at Atlantic. And Davison at the time was probably perhaps the most, the most powerful man in the American poetry scene. Um, he was the poetry editor at uh, Atlantic Magazine, and he was uh, running Atlantic Press. Um, John had moved, he had begun in the US with Macmillan, who published the barracks. He sent Macmillan his manuscript of The Dark, and they hated it so much that not alone did they reject it for, as they say, making the skin creep. They also wrote to Faber and told them to reject it in the UK. Uh, Faber told them where to get off, thankfully. And, and so we have the dark. Um, so he, he didn't have a publisher. So he went to Knopf and a man called Patrick Gregory. Uh, Knopf published the dark. But then Gregory moved publishers to a publishing house called Gambit. So again, McGarren was without an obvious publisher. So he goes to Atlantic, who publish Nightlines. But that's not smooth either, as you can see from that letter. He's outraged by their suggestion for a cover. And you're right. I mean, there's a whole history of, of modern Irish literature in that letter. You know, a despair on McGarren's part that Ireland is being commodified as a joke, essentially, uh, a, a place of, of mists and... Um, uh, old ladies in shawls and thatched cottages. And that's the Ireland that he, 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 he wants out of. He, and he wants us all to break out of. He knows it doesn't even exist, except in the minds perhaps of, uh, of you know, uh, certain American publishers in this case. Um, and you know, it's, it's an angry letter. It's, it's a rare angry letter because McGahern, McGahern is very courteous uh, throughout. Um, and even when he is angry, so there's a much later letter, for instance, where he's angry about the cover of that they may face the rising sun that Faber are proposing to, to use. And, um, you know, he feels he hasn't been properly consulted and, but he, it, he keeps it very courteous as he, as he calls it implacable courtesy and courtesy, I think for McGahern becomes both a means of defense and of attack throughout his life. Um, uh, that letter to Peter Davison that, and, and by the way, thank you for the video. He did a terrific job on, on setting that up. Um, John writes that letter from Madrid. And you see in the letter that he talks about that he's gonna be back in Paris. This is an aspect of McGahern that, that I think is important to, 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 for us to see. McGahern was, was, was moving about. He was, uh, he was as far from uh, a country gent as it's possible to be at this point in his life. He'd lived in the East End of London for several years. He'd lived in upstate New York, Paris. He was on the move. He's writing to Peter Davison from Madrid where he's traveling with, with Madeleine at this point. Um, so, I mean, the, uh, he wins this argument. Uh, Peter Davison agrees. Um, I don't have the letter from Peter Davison, but that when, when Nightlines gets published in the US, it gets published in, in a fairly plain copy with just the word Nightlines uh, four times across a kind of dark purple cover. And Nightlines, when it's published by Faber, I have, the, I have it here. This is the first edition of Nightlines. This is what he wanted. This is what he favored. Um, 
And uh, there are several letters also to his Faber editor, Charles Monteith, about the marketing of night lines. The other thing that this letter shows us, this is from September 1970, is it shows us a, a man who's growing in confidence. He's willing to take on the pe people like Monteith and Davis and say, this is what I want and I intend to get it. Um, as you pointed out, Eve, the earlier letters, he's much more unsure. He's trying to find himself. Letters to Jimmy Swift and to his sister Dimpna, which I think are terrific in those first hundred pages or, or so of the book. You know, he, he's trying to find himself. He's trying to see who am I? What, what is the nature of art? What, are the, what is the project I am undertaking? Uh, whereas by 1970, he's tough-minded. You know, he's negotiating, he's negotiating royalties. Uh, he's not prepared to take, take, uh, take any old answer. And so he gets his way on the cover of, of Nightlines. So, yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's a, really, a really interesting lesson. It is, and we do get that tremendous array of what goes on behind the scenes of the, the work itself, the published novels. Uh, and that's a real, uh, I think, depth that there is to these letters. So we do see that the cosmopolitan um, professional writer and his his own scepticism about the, the the farmer writer label that so often is is put upon him. But of course, Frank, and this is perhaps something we can talk about uh, by way of close here is we also see a very vulnerable young author and a young man who is writing to family members. And as you say, particularly to his sister and alluding to the very difficult family circumstances of his upbringing. And for people who come to McGahan through those novels, through the dark, through the barracks, and much later through amongst women, how much can we read backwards into the letters from what we know of the autobiographical elements of the novels? Yeah, I mean, I think very, very closely, really. Um, you know, John was from, a, he lost his mother uh, when he was nine. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, he writes about that very memorably in memoir in 2005. Um, and he, his father was a difficult man, uh, a guard, a sergeant, uh, a veteran of the Anglo-Irish War who'd been out in flying columns with the IRA. Um, and who, I mean, we, you'll remember the character of Moran from, from Amongst Women, who says that the, the happiest he ever was was when he had a man in the sight of his rifle. And uh, that John takes that directly from his own father. Um, and his own father had said that. Um, so his own father was a very um, clever but thwarted individual uh, who's landed with suddenly with seven children when he's still a relatively young man, his wife is gone. Um, and he's a guard, sergeant in a small rural barracks and all of that. We know, I mean, we know that if we've read the fiction, um, but it, in the letters, I mean, you see that this, you know, how much this was part of John's life. I mean, I, I, I think it's important to stress though, that John, that it's, that John, in his own way, dealt with that. Uh, and John, I think it's, I think it's wrong, as, as I think sometimes has been said, that he was bitter about it. I don't think he was bitter about it. I mean, in the same way, he wasn't bitter about the banning of the dark. He deals with these things. He loves his father. He tries to understand his father. And he, in fact, he says that that's why he wrote memoir, was to try to understand his father and his father's motivations. I don't think he ever did understand him. 
and it's of great uh, sadness to him. But all of that you see illustrated very much so through through the letters, and we get a deeper understanding of of who this man was um, and what made him. And uh, from those early nervous attempts to move into the world of writing through to those late masterful uh, books like that they may face the rising sun and memoir um, where and also just just to finish I mean you see him facing up to his own mortality in the end there are several very moving letters about his own terminal illness where he's being very straight up with certain friends and saying you know I know I'm I'm on the way out and that's it and uh it'll have to be dealt with um so you have this calmness you know and and steeliness right yeah. from from the from the start to the finish that i find fascinating and admirable absolutely and, and a tremendous achievement frank uh, and, and congratulations again to you uh, and i hope we'll have time uh, for you to talk a bit more in a minute but i i want to pick up on this idea of of the man at the heart of the correspondence and, and come on to Philip Coleman to talk about John Berryman because uh, Philip in, in this wonderful volume that you put together with Callista McRae on Berryman's letters, you open the book with uh, your epigraph with a wonderful quotation from a Berryman essay. I think that in letters, as in no other form of writing, the man appears. Now, tell us about the man that appears from Berryman's letters. Who was he? That's right, Eve. Um, you can imagine our delight when we discovered that uh, statement by Berryman, actually in an essay, an undergraduate essay on Horace Walpole, who, of course, is one of the greatest letter writers in literary history. I think his, his uh, work, uh, his letters runs to about 50 volumes. Um, but uh, absolutely, um, we, you know, th through these um, letters, we get a, a, you know, a really interesting sense, uh, a fuller sense, I think, than we've ever had before of the poet John Berryman. So first and foremost, a poet, um, a contemporary of uh, Shirley Jackson's, in fact. Um, Shirley Jackson was born in uh, 1916, died in 1965. Berryman was born in 1914, uh, died in 1972. Um, I suppose... Um, if readers know his work, uh, the, the work that they might, might know best is the Dream Songs, which is, I think, his most important contribution to uh, not only American poetry, but the, uh, the, the history of the long poem in the English language in the 20th century. Um, he, like uh, Jackson, uh, kind of came to prominence as a poet in the post-Second uh, World War era. So we can see some similar concerns, I think, to Jackson in terms of you know, kind of um, a kind of uh, anxiety about the Cold War, anxiety about you know that kind of climate of uncertainty that everybody was living through in the United States um, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, but uh, you know, principally as a poet, I, I suppose um, I should also mention that he was um, a, a serious uh, scholar, uh, literary scholar, and um, wrote, for example, the first book on uh, Stephen Crane, uh, the important naturalist writer. Uh, made a number of really significant uh, contributions to Shakespeare scholarship. And along with that, then you have uh, Berryman as an academic. I mean, he was, you know, throughout his career, he worked um, in various universities in the United States. Um, and this is an, also, I think, an important part of, of his profile. Um, 
So yeah, that's 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 um, I think how most people would know him, Eve. Yeah. Thanks, Philip. And of course, as with with John McGahan, one of the things that comes through very much in the letters is the writer's circle. And with McGahan, the, the names of the correspondents leap out at you. You know that he's writing to a young column to Bean, for example. In the case of Berryman, we've got an extraordinary circle of correspondents: Alan Tate, Delmore Schwartz, Ezra Pound, Elliot, W. H. Auden. Uh, I mean, how much does that sense of writing to these figures flesh out a literary era for you as, as you work through them? It's hugely important, Eve, um, not least because uh, the Berryman side of the correspondence network that involves all of those writers you've just mentioned, the Berryman side of that network hasn't really been available to us until now. Um, two biographies of Berryman have been published, one by John Haffenden, um, in the 80s, Paul Mariani followed up um, in the early 90s. Um, but, you know, where letters are quoted, letters to various writers, including those you've mentioned, are quoted. But until now, we haven't had Berryman's side of those um, exchanges uh, with really key people, um, including those you've mentioned, but also um, Robert Lowell in particular, who's a, you know, a major 20th century American poet and also um, uh, fiction writers and scholars. Um, for example, Berryman's correspondence with Saul Bellow here, I think is really interesting. It's great to see his uh, Berryman side of that um, correspondence. Um, and so you really do get a sense, I think, in reading the letters of an individual, a poet, first and foremost, but also a scholar, an academic, who is thoroughly involved in the kind of literary networks and debates of his time. Uh, from, from his late teens, really, um, when he first started to publish and edit magazines, right through to his um, death in, in 1972, you know, engaging with, with other writers, um, not only the well-known ones, you know, often it's, he'll take maybe a younger writer or writers under his wing, offer words of encouragement, read their work, introduce them to the editors of magazines and so on. So you see, for example, in the uh, 1960s, he develops a really significant and I think quite surprising and maybe unexpected uh, epistolary friendship with Adrian Rich. And I think many readers of Rich might not have expected this to happen, knowing both, both poets, but the letters to Rich here, I think, are really interesting. Um, and then other, other younger writers like um, William Meredith, Edward Hoagland, and so on, younger American writers who Berryman works with. You know, so th this is really, I think, um, one of the ways in which uh, the, the, the letters do flesh out and fill out our sense of, of who he was and, and how, you know, how he worked, who he worked with. Exactly. And that, that incredible transatlantic map that he, that he was part of. It, it strikes me perhaps even more with, with Berryman than the other two writers were discussing that the, the correspondence serves, first of all, as a reading diary because he references every book he's reading, every book he's trying to buy, uh, every book that someone has sent him that you know he doesn't like. So we, we have him surrounded by other books, but we also have that intimate close-up process, the writing process presented to us with all its difficulties and its burdens and its dejection. And it really made me think reading these letters, it's so hard to be a writer. I wonder, yeah. Philip, if we could just have a look at a, a video excerpt uh, of, of Berryman thinking about this.
Dear Blackmer, talked to Tate a good deal when he was in New York lecturing. Delightful, very wise, spoke hugely of you. Letter from him this afternoon about my poem. Oh, I hadn't told you. I wrote in July a masterpiece of about 350 lines called Ritual at Arlington and sent it to the s.rev.contest. Tate and Mark judges. It didn't win, of course, but they put it five and some 500, he says, and there are very fine passages in it, the best, I thought, in the whole contest. Ah, I swell with pride, and am damn disappointed the theme, description of society by analysis of the incremental ceremonies about death, is valuable, I think, and the handling adequate. I'd like awfully for you to see it, if you wouldn't mind. Say so, and I'll send it over. Lectures begin tomorrow. I'll be on Chaucer and Dunn and Blake and Yates mostly this fall. Beautiful town, really, but my mind is in such turmoil. I can't be still long enough to inhale this history. I hope this finds you and Miss Blackmore well and joyous and busy, and you disposed to read such an interminable mass mess. Sincerely, John Berryman. Terrific. And, and how interesting there to see him, Philip, uh, obviously working on Yeats. And I know he tried to, you know, so hard to assemble the volume of criticism on Yeats. Yeats, he says in one letter, is more praised than read, which I think is possibly still true. Um, and he did have an interest in what was happening in Ireland. And indeed, he did visit Dublin and stay in Dublin for a period of time. Can you just tell us very briefly about his Irish connection? I can, Eve, and in fact, I'll just mention for anybody uh, tuning into this um, event that the full text of that letter is on the Literary Hub website, so you can read it there without buying the, the, the volume. That's a remarkable letter. Uh, Berryman wrote it in uh, 19, uh, 1936. Um, he was in Cambridge, England. Um, he had gone there on a scholarship, on a Kellett scholarship from Columbia, where he was an undergraduate. And he was there for two years. While he was in Cambridge, um, he wrote that letter to R.P. Blackmore, the great critic, who was also really important to his development. But while he was in Cambridge, he made his first visit to Dublin to try to find and set up a meeting with Yeats. Now, he got to uh, Dublin and, you know, tried to find Yeats, didn't find him, but met Yeats's sister, who told him, well, you know, Mr. Yeats is in London. So off he went back to London where he had this really wonderful um, meeting with William Butler Yeats. And he subsequently wrote one of his longest, one of Berryman's longest letters where he describes meeting Yeats at the Athenaeum Club and what they talked about and so on. And for Berryman, this was like such an important moment. Um, there's a photograph there in the, in the video that was just shown of a couple of photographs of Berryman taken in fact in Dublin in 1966, 67, when he lived um, at 55 Lansdowne Park in Balls Bridge. And uh, uh, Ryan's on Haddington Road, the Beggar's Bush was kind of like his office in a way. He used to go there um, almost every morning and set up a shop and write and unfortunately also uh, drink. But in one of the dream songs he wrote during that period in the 60s, he said, I have moved to Dublin to have it out with you, majestic shade, you whom I read so well all those years ago. And of course, he's thinking about William Butler Yeats, who was really a lifelong um, source of inspiration, but also kind of, um, you know, kind of a difficult, a very difficult influence for, for the young American poet, uh, one he never forgot. He's, he's obviously 
very self-aware of his own profile as a writer and and as a critic um and as a you know as a as a lecturer too you know that the the burdens of university life um but I, I found some of his letters quite theatrical in the way that he talks about himself he talks about you know being a bifurcated personality in one letter and and right. being this strange combination of arrogance and boredom um first of all philip was he again aware of, of a, 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 a sense that the letters would one day be used in the way that we're using them now and second i wonder if you can talk a bit about the difficulty of some of the later letters where berryman um, becomes not only very depressed uh, and suffers breakdowns but also is is talking in suicidal terms there's one letter which says i think you know every year i hope that by the next year i will be dead um, now, is this part of the theatrical Berryman, or are we entering into a period of correspondence at times where we're beginning to be a little bit um, uncomfortable with, with seeing so deeply into someone's personal suffering? Yeah, I mean, you've raised a number of really important issues there, Eve. I mean, just to go back uh, to the first question about, you know, the first part of the question about the letters and whether Berryman himself might ever have imagined that they would be published in this way. In fact, there's an early letter to the New Directions publisher, James Lachlan, where he says, you know, I want you to send this letter back to me. Um, and if, if you don't, then you should destroy it. On the other hand, um, we know from his own work as a scholar that he valued nothing more than, you know, than actually being able to access things like the letters of Stephen Crane, for example, and the, the letters of Pound, we know he read them very carefully, the ones that were published in the DD Page um, edition. So that, that kind of division, that tension and kind of conflict in Berryman, I think is very interesting. In the letter that you quote, he identifies this, uh, as you say, this kind of bifurcated personality between, on the one hand, being the artist, the poet, which was always the primary thing for him, but also being what he calls Dr. Dryas Dust, the scholar, the academic. Um, I think actually in terms of performance that the letters do often um, kind of perform this division um, for him between the kind of the coldly kind of new critical and analyst of literature on the one hand, and then the uh, kind of the freedom, the kind of that he would associate with the creative impulse on the other. We see this division, I think, too, borne out in, in his published poetry, especially in the dream songs where you know, the idea of a fragmented self is so important to our sense of what he's doing um, with lyric. Um, and, and this is, I think, also part of what's so original about, about Berryman as a poet, you know. But you're absolutely right as well in terms of um, the later letters. And I, I, I do feel that, I mean, as Callista and I uh, were working on this project, we noticed that as the decades went on um, into the 60s, certainly, the letters became shorter. Uh, they became more cursory and often more businesslike, except in some rare cases. Um, and we could put this down partly to just, just the fact that Berryman was so busy, you know, trying to keep so many things in the air, but also because I think of his alcoholism, um, which became very, you know, really debilitating by the end of his, uh, by the end of the 1960s. Um, and I think also because he became a little bit better off, you know, he got his, you know, got tenure at the University of Minnesota, he could afford a telephone. And so I think he, you know, bothered a lot of people with late night telephone calls instead of writing the long letters he may have written in the 40s, 50s. But it, but it is true to say, even I think just as a way of kind of summing this up, that there are very dark moments in these letters. 
And they're there from the very beginning because, you know, we know, of course, you know, Berryman took his own life in 1972 at the age of 57. Um, his own father had um, committed suicide when Berryman was a 12 year old boy. And the first letter in the book um, is, in fact, a letter to his, his father, his birth father and his mother, in which he says, and this is for me one of the most moving moments in the entire book, where at the end of the letter to his parents, he says, I love you too much to talk about. And that's just when I, I remember when I saw that for the first time, I just had to put everything aside and go outside for a while. But I think that also gets to the heart of what you're saying, Eve, that there are often things in Berryman that seem very direct and businesslike and clear, but there's always a sense too that there's something that isn't being opened up about. They're not as full of disclosures as perhaps we might expect for one's personal and private letters. Exactly, and, and thank you for, for talking to that, that point, Philip, and it's something that all of you as editors, you know, have to deal with, that you've got letters which are deeply, deeply emotional and share the most intimate details, but you've also, you know, as with Berryman, got, you've got letters that talk about how the refrigerator isn't working, or I think at one point he gets obsessed with not being able to find cooking chocolate anywhere. You know, the mundane is there alongside the profound and the anguished. I wonder if um, we could we could bring everyone back in just to to talk a bit more about the processes that you've all um, been through with these uh, great editing projects. And and if I could ask you all, I hope this is the right question. But all of you worked on these writers before you edited their letters. Have your own personal views of these authors shifted or changed in any way because of this journey that you've taken through their correspondence? Bernice, maybe you could you could just give us a sense of whether you see a different uh, different Shirley Jackson. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. Um, I mean, obviously, as someone who's done work on Jackson for two decades now, on and off, um, you know, I was very familiar with the two biographies, and you know, then. Uh, readers who particularly who are familiar with the most recent biography, the wonderful biography from 2016 by Ruth Franklin, you know, quite a few of the letters here are you know, from are excerpted in, in the biography. So a lot of the material was was, you know, familiar to me or sort of, you know, I had come across before in, in snippets. But there is there is an intimacy in reading someone's correspondence. Um, uh, particularly, uh, particularly, you know, uh, very, very personal correspondence and, and seeing, I mean, Lawrence and I were initially working with, you know, the original typescripts and there's something, there's something tremendously, you do feel like, you know, it may be a false feeling in a way, but you do feel like you get to know someone. And, and I suppose um, maybe like this is feedback, you know, we've been getting from readers of the volume is that with Jackson, because her personality comes across, I think quite strongly is, as any writer in their letters, um, is you kind of feel like um, by the time of her, you know, tragically premature death in 1965, she's only 48 when she when she she died very suddenly um, of heart failure. Um, you feel like you've kind of lost a friend, and um, <laughs> that's something that um, yeah, like Philip was saying about um, you know moments where you kind of go something kind of breaks your heart. And with Jackson, definitely, I felt. I did feel even kind of like closer to the writer than I had beforehand because you're so you're so like a, so immersed in this project for years and reading it over and over again. So, and and Frank, I mean, obviously, again, you know so much about John McGahan, but having gone through this this really meticulous and forensic process of of working on the correspondence, did you learn things you didn't appreciate before? Did did he change for you? 
Um, I would say that I began in um, complete admiration for the work and that the working on the letters has left me in, in, in still with that complete admiration, but also with, with great admiration for the man. I got to know the man a great deal better by, by working on the letters. And I was interested in what Philip had to say about uh, Berryman's uh, indebtedness and admiration for Yeats. Because Yeats, I think, is, is, is the most constant master for McGahern and the most constant touchstone. And I think McGahern did um, uh, manage to do what, what Yeats uh, asked us to do on his, uh, on his gravestone. He, he casts a cold eye on life and on death. And uh, he, he treats both equally. Um, I just want to read a couple of sentences from a late letter from June 2003, where he knows he's dying. Uh, and he's writing to a friend of his, Michael Gorman. There is not too much difference here, other than the adjustment to a different reality. A reality we always knew was there and unavoidable, but is still different when it comes. I used to have ways of avoiding going to the room to write disliking the intensity and total absorption, but now I'm glad of it. It belongs more to now than when we felt free in acres of time, and that too was necessary and is. I find I have to be socially more careful. All society excludes this knowledge in order to function. Oh, wonderful. I mean, what better insight could you get into the the, the burden of, of creativity and, uh, and the discipline that is required. And, and certainly that's something that really came through to me from, from reading McGahan's letters is a man of tremendous discipline um, in, in his approach to his art. Um, and uh, of course, something that, that all three writers share. But Philip, I'm, I'm going to come to you to begin to move towards a close and it would be remiss of me not to, to ask you about this, um, but of course, we're living now in the digital age. We assume we're not going to have writers collected emails and texts to anything like the extent that we have the correspondence that the three of you have worked on in these three respective cases. How do you see, or is there a, a vision of a future where we, we don't have this kind of repository or archive for the authors that we read. Yeah, I mean, Eve, can I just say, first of all, that one of the greatest um, disappointments to us, Calista and I editing the book was that we couldn't find a letter from Berryman to Yates. So I just want to put that out there. If anybody should know. Lost letter. Thing, please yeah. let us know a lost letter. But I'm not so sure, um, Eve. Um, I, I, I actually think that it should be possible in the future. I mean, I know um, there's a wonderful anthology edited by Frank and Anita Kermode, the Oxford Book of Letters. And they wonder at the end of the introduction to that, you know, whether it would be possible ever to imagine the Oxford book of emails. And I used to think um, that this would surely be impossible, you know, because we, uh, we, uh, we I think, um, for a long time foolishly believed that e all emails are deleted. But of course they're not, you know, and I think some writers in particular are probably more careful about keeping their emails than others and keeping the correspondence. And I, for one, I'm sure everybody here would share this, you know, I'm sure you've received wonderful emails from established writers, interesting public figures, colleagues, which 
you may have printed off just to have it there for posterity, for reference. So I'm not actually as, as convinced um, that it won't be possible in the future to have um, writers' correspondence um, gathered in the ways that these books have been. We, 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 we may even see um, digital archives, I mean, they are already in existence, digital archives already exist, um, where digital files can be stored and held and accessed. So. Um, I, I think it's a, you know it's a really interesting question, um, but I'd love to hear you know younger writers talk about it, um, and uh, yeah, I wonder what Frank and Bernice think about it. But um, I think there will always be an interest in this kind of thing. The, the text I think about as well is um, the Aspern Papers, of course, the great novella by Henry James. Mm. And I'm not suggesting that Frank or Bernice or indeed myself or anything like <laughs> the scholar in that book. But I think there's always a desire um, among those of us who love particular writers to, to learn more, to find out more about them, their lives, their working habits, sometimes in the hope that we'll find that letter that will just explain it all to us, you know, a bit like Jeffrey Aspern. Um, but um, I, yeah, so I, that's my view on it. Eve. Thank you, Philip. And, and a wonderful moment on, on which to close far too yeah. soon what's been an absolutely fascinating discussion for any writers listening in. Please archive your emails, start now. Uh, but uh, I, I want to, to express our thanks to uh, Bernice, to Frank and to Philip uh, for giving us the time today to talk about writer's letters and, uh, and recommend these three volumes to anyone who has enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. Uh, for all of you listening, enjoy Culture Night, make the most of it please come back to the Trinity Long Room Hub website and sign up for some of our other events. Thank you again to our speakers, to Francesca and Quiva, who did our wonderful technical The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print process, stamping provenance towards the history of the Trinity Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.